You are listening to a podcast from the UAB School of Nursing Health Network. Today, I have the privilege of interviewing Dr. Karen Heaton. Dr. Heaton is an associate professor here at the UAB School of Nursing and is the director of our PhD program. She completed her PhD in 2007 from the University of Kentucky, and her research has focused primarily on sleep deprivation and its effect on cognition and risk of injury in workers. Dr. Heaton, welcome. Thank you, Caroline. Absolutely. So tell me, um, how did you become involved in your research um, on sleep deprivation? Well, I attended a conference a few years ago, and at that time, um, there was a presentation on railroaders and how their risk for train crashes increased with um, increased sleep deprivation, and that sleep deprivation uh, affected the brain in the same way that alcohol intoxication does. And so it became obvious to me that if railroaders experience that problem, surely uh, truck drivers who have very erratic and unpredictable schedules probably have that same type of issue too. And I became very interested in sleep deprivation among commercial drivers and their risk for uh, motor vehicle crash. That's so interesting, um, the, the correlation between sleep deprivation and alcoholism. Um, that's extremely important. Right. Um, I know that sleep conditions are common in our populations. Um, how is obstructive sleep apnea different from just any sleeping condition? Well, obstructive sleep apnea is an actual medical diagnosis, and that's very different from just uh, periodically having difficulty falling asleep or staying asleep, which can be caused by lifestyle choices such as you know, having caffeine later in the evening than usual, or perhaps exercising a little too soon before bedtime. But this is an actual uh, medical diagnosis with a diagnosis code um, that is recognized by insurers and so forth. What are signs and symptoms of sleep apnea that would classify it as its own disease? Um, well, there are several signs and symptoms of sleep apnea. One of the most common ones is loud snoring. Um, the other is, uh, others would be things like morning headaches on awakening, uh, dry throat, um, excessive sleepiness during the daytime to the point that um, falling asleep during meetings, falling asleep at traffic lights, that sort of thing, when most normal people would not fall asleep. Those are probably um, three of the most um, common types of uh, signs and symptoms you would see with it. That's really helpful. Um, in thinking about um, someone maybe who has a bed partner, um, how would a bed partner know if their partner had sleep apnea or what which one of those signs and symptoms would be most concerning to them? Well, it's very interesting. Most of the time, or many times, I should say, the bed partner is the person who insists that the person with sleep apnea come and get a, a checkout because of a couple of things. First of all, the snoring is so loud that it disrupts the bed partner's sleep. But the other thing is many times the uh, bed partner also observes that the person actually appears to stop breathing during their sleep, and that becomes very frightening for the bed partner. Yeah, I'm sure that is very unnerving. Right. Um, is it common? Yes, it's estimated that about 80 million people in the United States have obstructive sleep apnea, but the 
part that's really concerning and the reason I'm glad to be here today is that uh, we think that about 85% of people who actually have sleep apnea go undiagnosed. And so it's very important for nurses and other healthcare professionals to become more aware so that we do um, pay more attention. That was actually my next question. Um, I can imagine that this is a condition that probably does go underdiagnosed. Yes. Um, if your bed partner is sleeping well and you don't note your symptoms as abnormal or out of the normal, if they become common to you, I can see where they would be overlooked. Yes, that's correct. Um, so if, if someone didn't have um, a bed partner or someone involved in their life when they're sleeping, um, how do they usually find this condition? Well, there are some other physical uh, attributes that are common in people with obstructive sleep apnea, mm -hmm. but not necessarily everyone. But for example, obesity is strongly linked, linked with obstructive sleep apnea, as is a very large uh, neck circumference. Um, there are certain characteristics of facial structures. Uh, sometimes people who have recessed chins or overbites are more likely to have obstructive sleep apnea. Um, people with aging, as they age, tend to be more at risk compared to younger folks. And the other issue is um, if people have very large tonsils, if they still have their tonsils as adults, or if they have a very small uh, oral cavity, uh, that can put them at risk as well. That's interesting. Um, you, so you mentioned a lot of uh, physical, um, I guess, uh, characteristics. Um, would those be genetic or would sleep apnea be genetic as a result? It's, it's not quite clear what the genetic link is as far as sleep apnea goes, but it has been determined that about 50% of people um, who have first degree relatives with sleep apnea are likely to develop it themselves. Um, that's significant, 50%. Yes. Um, you mentioned um, just a minute ago that um, heavy snoring is a, a symptom of sleep apnea. Um, and I know that all of us have heard friends or bed partners or um, somebody in our near proximity um, heavily snoring. Um, is that always a sign of sleep apnea? Not necessarily, but, but it's probably the most common thing. And it isn't just... Um, snoring, it, it is very loud snoring that can be heard in another room. So it isn't just common snoring, it's, um, um, well. Significant. Very significant, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Not just a rhythmic breathing of sleeping. Correct. And you know, the reason why that's an important sign is what actually happens in sleep apnea is that when the person lies down to sleep, and their upper airway muscles relax, the tongue falls backwards, and the upper airway actually becomes occluded or blocked while the person continues to try to breathe. And what that does is it causes uh, a lot of negative pressure inside the chest cavity and a lot of strain on the heart. And it means that that person's oxygen concentration drops during that period when the airway is actually obstructed. And so the brain actually begins to wake up uh, to alert the person to 
to breathe. Um, they may not be aware of waking up, but this can happen hundreds of times during a night. And so the result is that the person with obstructive sleep apnea, which is not treated, uh, has very fragmented and poor sleep quality so that they don't ever feel rested. And there it leads to some real problems with um, physical comorbidity comorbidities as well as cognitive performance. If you think about it, if your brain never gets a chance to fully rest at night, it's certainly not going to function very well during the day. Absolutely. Um, we're, we're thankful for the research that you do and thankful for the attention that you've um, given to this condition because it, it is so important that our bodies get rest. Um, we, you mentioned strain on the heart. Yes. Um, what, what kind of associated conditions do you usually find with sleep apnea? Well, some of the most serious uh, comorbid conditions with obstructive sleep apnea are cardiovascular conditions such as myocardial infarction, atrial fibrillation, uncontrolled or poorly controlled hypertension, stroke, and sudden cardiac death. In addition to that, um, people with obstructive sleep apnea are more likely to develop um, type 2 diabetes, and also males are more likely to be impotent. Um, so there are many, many severe uh, and disturbing comorbid conditions that go along with it. Um, so when you when you talk about these conditions, you just mean um, they they kind of are paired together, not necessarily um, one causes the other. Is it always one to the other? Well, obstructive sleep apnea is considered to be uh, strongly associated causal uh, okay. in some of the cardiovascular conditions, yes, because in addition to um, the strain that the negative uh, pressure puts on the heart when it's trying to pump, um, it also causes inflammation inside the blood vessels and it accelerates atherosclerotic changes in blood vessels. Um, so that, that's, um, that's a very important thing too. Absolutely. Um, is it common for children to have sleep apnea? Actually it is, and there are two reasons that children have obstructive sleep apnea. We used to think that the main reason children had obstructive sleep apnea was because of very large tonsils and very large tongues. Um, and because the child's tongue is proportionately larger uh, inside the mouth than the adults. But so the treatment for obstructive sleep apnea in children uh, traditionally was a tonsillectomy. However, with the high prevalence now of obesity in children, um, they have some of the same reasons for obstructive sleep apnea as adults. In other words, you know, the obesity, the heavy neck, the weight of the neck as the child lays down uh, and falls asleep, you know, presses and obstructs the airway. That's great information, um, especially for parents who may be watching um, to be aware of um, watching their children sleep occasionally, checking on them. How is sleep apnea diagnosed? Um, well, there are a couple of different ways to diagnose it now. Um, there is a test called a polysomnography, polysomnography excuse me, uh, and in that test, uh, one actually is referred to a sleep medicine physician, um, and they go and actually spend at least part of a night uh, sleeping in the lab hooked up to a number of different types of sensors. Uh, they have EEG, they have monitors on the eyelids to monitor eye movements, they have things inside the nose to measure air pressure, air movement, bands on the abdomen and the legs to measure movement of the abdomen and the legs, and of course pulse oximetry. So it's a very um, um, 
intensive monitoring process overnight. And quite often during that night, if it's evident right away within the first four hours that a person has a, a severe apnea, they will go ahead and begin initiating treatment on them to make sure they respond uh, during the same night before they send them home the next morning with a prescription for treatment. Wow, it sounds like it would be difficult to sleep for probably anyone with all of those monitors on. It, it does seem that way, but interestingly enough, most people are able to fall asleep. Really? Yes. Um, well, that's wonderful because we're able to kind of further their treatment, I'm mm -hmm. sure. Um, if if um, a patient was concerned um, that they had sleep apnea, um, how would they go about pursuing that testing? Well, um, it, it sort of depends on the person's um, insurance. Uh, it depends on whether or not they would be covered to go directly to a sleep medicine specialist who could do the testing or if they have to be referred by their primary care provider. I would, I would say that it would probably be a great idea if they're having those kinds of, any of those kinds of concerns that we uh, talked about earlier, that they seek out their primary care provider first because it's very likely that there are other things going on with them as well. Absolutely. Primary care provider is a great gatekeeper to our world. Right. Um, so outside of the intensive testing um, that you explained, are there other um, screening tools available maybe in a primary care physician's office that give us more information? Yes, there are several um, instruments, written instruments that are like surveys, like questionnaires that have been validated and established that let you know that there, someone might be at higher risk for obstructive sleep apnea. There's certain questionnaires, the Berlin Sleep Questionnaire, for example. There's one called Stop Bang, and there are various others like that. So the judgment on whether or not to refer someone for sleep apnea testing would be a combination of that kind of testing plus the physical exam and the history that would be done uh, on the person, looking at things like the blood pressure, the number of blood pressure medicines required to control the blood pressure if it's controlled, the BMI, the neck circumference, the waist circumference, and that sort of thing. Um, so talking about our screening tools and talking about um, diagnosing sleep apnea, um, I know we've kind of touched on this a little bit, but um, just for our, our audience and for um, any healthcare providers um, watching or any family members, caretakers, um, why is it important um, for us to be diagnosed with sleep apnea um, as opposed to just kind of um, managing it at home? Well, there are many reasons. First of all, uh, being diagnosed and treated can really improve the quality of life of the person with obstructive sleep apnea. Uh, most of the time when people are newly diagnosed and they first go on their treatment, they come back and report how much better they feel because they're actually getting some restful sleep for a change. Uh, if you think about it, you know, someone who's been waking up 80 times or more an hour, you know, if they're treated and that stops and they're getting a full night's sleep, it has to be lots better. Not only that, they will be able to perform better at work. Some of these other issues like the impotence and um, daytime sleepiness, driving difficulties, falling asleep at the wheel, those things will go away.
when you see them, they often make comments like they feel more rested and they yes. don't feel as sleepy while they're driving. Yes, that's exactly right. That's incredible. Right, and it's certainly a, that that is certainly a safety issue when you think about certain workers. You know, uh, the, probably the commercial truck driver is the one we think about the most, but you also wouldn't want your surgeon or your nurse or, um, you know, in anyone who affects the safety of other people to have untreated obstructive sleep apnea. Definitely not. Um, so we've talked a little bit about um, diagnosis of sleep apnea. Um, transitioning toward treatment, um, what kind of treatments are available for those diagnosed with sleep apnea? The most common treatment is something called continuous positive airway pressure or CPAP. That's for years been considered the gold standard. And the way it works is uh, pressurized air is pulsed through a tubing into something called an interface, which can be a mask that fits over the nose and mouth, or it can um, be through something called nasal pillows, which almost looks like a glorified large nasal cannula. Um, that fits over the head uh, with a, a Velcro elastic piece to hold it stable through the night. Um, that is the main treatment. However, there is also another treatment that's become popular called a dental um, appliance. And what that does is it's something almost like a, uh, a retainer that uh, fits in the mouth and is worn at night. It's custom fitted for people. And it pulls the, the jaw and the chin forward so the airway is opened. And there are some people who would benefit just from having that and not using CPAP. And then the most invasive treatment for obstructive sleep apnea is a surgical procedure called a UPPP, uh, uvulopalatopharyngeoplasty. And what that means is that the uvula and other soft tissue in the airway is actually taken out to make more room in the upper airway so that the air can flow uh, when the person lies back. Um, the effectiveness of that treatment over time um, is um, not as high as you would think considering how invasive the procedure is, but it is an available treatment for people who can't or don't want to tolerate CPAP or the dental device. It's nice that um, patients have options, I guess, thinking about the dental and the CPAP and the surgery um, yes. to talk through with their provider. Um, do providers ever use medication to treat sleep apnea? Um, no, not to treat the apnea itself, but in a select patients, uh, there are medications that can be used if the person is shown to be adherent, if they're genuinely trying to adhere to their therapy, CPAP therapy for the minimum required, you know, average of four, night, four hours a night, 70% of the time, and they still, in spite of doing that, have excessive sleepiness. There are some medications that can be used to, to assist them with excessive daytime sleepiness. However, um, those are used uh, cautiously and judiciously, particularly in certain worker groups who, you know, the point is we want them to use their therapy and not rely on medication alone. Uh, because the medication won't take care of those cardiovascular and cerebrovascular com uh, complications that occur. That's helpful information. Um, you mentioned earlier um, insurance. How does insurance play a role in um, diagnosing and, and treatment therapy with these patients? Well, um, 
you know, of course people need to check with their insurers, but, you know, the polysomnograms and the treatments are, are covered. Uh, once a person is diagnosed with obstructive sleep apnea, um, the negotiation about what is the best therapy needs to happen between the sleep medicine provider and the patient. And then, um, you know, of course, pre-approval for a surgical procedure would need to be done. Um, that probably would not be approved until you know, some of the other two treatments were tried first. And with CPAP particularly, um, the individual has to do a trial of CPAP to make sure that they can tolerate it and that, and that um, they adhere to the therapy before. You know, the insurance will pay for it for a period of time and then there's a, a, a recheck by the physician to determine that yes, they're adherent, they're tolerating it, and then the uh, therapy is, is approved for the remainder of the time. Mm, that's helpful. Um, are there any policies um, on getting sleep in any of these high-risk populations that you work with? Well, yes, there are hours of service regulations uh, that are promulgated by the Department of Transportation for both uh, railroaders, commercial truck drivers, marine uh, operators, and, and pilots. Um, interestingly enough, there uh, are not consistent guidelines or requirements for, although uh, people who do the physicals for those high-risk transportation workers are required to be aware of the signs and symptoms of obstructive sleep apnea and refer those workers for testing, um, there are not consistent regulations for mandatory testing and treatment. Um, those have been suggested over the years but have been shelved for a variety of reasons uh, that are uh, I could speculate on, but I won't. But but in any event, you know the medical examiners are bound to uh, recognize symptoms and refer. Mm -hmm. And then those workers who are diagnosed with the condition are required to adhere to the therapy. Otherwise, their um, um, professional licenses can be taken. Oh, it seems really important for them to be healthy sleepers and. Um, for their safety and for people around them. Yes, the Absolutely. safety of the public as well, right. Um, so frequently we have healthcare providers um, join in for our show. Um, how can nurses help um, promote awareness of um, sleep apnea or even just sleep deprivation in these patients? I think it's very important that we include questions about sleep anytime we interact with patients and their family, just like we do, we would do a routine set of vital signs or ask about a medication his, history. We should ask people how much sleep they're getting during a night and whether they feel like it's restful sleep or if they're having to wake up a good bit uh, to go to the restroom, which is another sign of uh, sleep apnea, by the way. Um, that it just becomes a routine part of the history. And then we can ask about snoring. Um, some people are embarrassed or don't understand how important it is to acknowledge snoring. Um, and the question really should be not, do you snore? But, but has anyone ever told you that you snore so loudly that they can either hear you in the next room or that they can't go to sleep themselves? Mm, that phrasing um, is important. Yes, but it's important to ask. Mm -hmm. And when we ask the questions, usually the patients and definitely their bed partners, if the bed partners there, will tell. It seems like a fairly um, simple addition to a hospital admission survey. Yes. Um, 
Do you know if if local hospitals include that question, or have you been involved in um, that? I don't know about that, but I do know uh, that there are some times when it's critical for people to uh, dis disclose that they have sleep apnea. For example, if a person is getting ready to have surgery, they should always tell their surgeon and their anesthesia provider, and they usually will be encouraged to bring their CPAP machine to the hospital with them so that as they're recovering from surgery, you know, they can use it in the hospital as well. I've absolutely cared for patients who have their own CPAP machines, mm -hmm. and it is helpful when they bring them because it's, it's familiar to them. Mm -hmm. It's a way that they can take care of themselves while they're in the hospital. Right. Um, if nurses um, were to find a patient that they suspected had sleep apnea, what's the best way for them to refer that patient um, while the patient's inpatient? What's, how does their role kind of fit within the healthcare team? Well, I would say that it, in, the, in a healthcare facility, the best thing to do would be to make those observations, first of all, document those observations in the medical record you know, as appropriate. And then secondly, to bring them to the attention of the physicians on rounds or the nurse practitioners or PAs who come around to uh, assess the patients. But, but the main thing is to discuss it and not just say, well, it's probably not that big of a deal. Don't assume it's not a big deal because it really can be a very big deal. Right, it's, it's worth the conversation. Absolutely. Um, so do you ever have um, patients or know of um, people who choose not to be treated when they have sleep apnea? Um, yes, actually there are people who really find it very uncomfortable to sleep with the CPAP mask or the interface device, whatever it is. Um, and even if they try it at home, they just are not able to um, follow up with it. I will tell you though, what we've learned from research uh, is that people who receive really good education and counseling and regular follow-ups from their either DME provider or their healthcare provider uh, tend to do much better and tend to adhere to the CPAP therapy much better. Um, just with the follow-up? Yes. Follow-up is critical. That helps a lot because we know that, you know, there are some people who just have claustrophobia, first of all, and some people, uh, for example, I, I will disclose freely, I have obstructive sleep apnea. I never was willing to try to sleep with a mask around my nose and mouth. However, the nasal pillows work beautifully. Um, so there are many, many options. And nobody should stop using the treatment because of the mask or the interface. There are many ways that it can be delivered in such a way that they can get effective therapy. Just have to find the right fit. That's right. That's right. Um, so I know that your research is extensive in um, sleep deprivation. Um, what does your research involve currently? Well, right this minute, um, I'm looking at um, how sleep affects mental health issues in commercial drivers and um, the social isolation, the combination of social isolation, sleep deprivation, uh, how those combinations affect mental health issues because we know that access to care is very difficult in commercial drivers and other remote workers. So, But I, I've looked at many things. I've looked at um, how the combination of sleep deprivation and distraction affects driving uh, safety in truckers, and um, but right now I'm on. I'm uh, looking at how that affects mental health because we know that it does certainly affect depression, 
likelihood and also the development of mood disorders mm -hmm. uh, when people are not getting adequate sleep. I wouldn't have thought about the implications of social isolation, but many of those career paths um, are done in isolation. Correct. Um, well, um, what, what resources do you know of that um, could be helpful for our viewers in um, looking at further into sleep deprivation? Well, um, I think there are three very good ones. There are many others, by the way, but there are three quite good ones. The first one is from the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. There's an education uh, link, and I think we're going to provide that to the viewers. Um, the second one is from the Chest Foundation, which is chest medicine. Um, and then the third is from the American Sleep Apnea Association, which is an advocacy group for people with sleep apnea. So um, the they're, they're kind of filled the gamut there because it's for, for and by providers, the first two. And then the third one is mostly a support group and advocacy for people with sleep apnea. So there's a lot of good information from real, real world patients and uh, a lot of online discussion boards and things like that. We appreciate you providing this, um, this for us today. Um, what are some takeaways? Um, if you could tell our audience just a few things to take away from our audience and caring for um, these patients. Well, I would say to family members and, and folks, um, not to take loud snoring for granted. Loud snoring is a serious sign of potentially of a very dangerous disease, obstructive sleep apnea. So if you or a family member is experiencing that, you certainly need to have it checked out. The second thing I would say is um, for healthcare providers, um, nurses, physicians, nurse practitioners, PAs, to be sure that you ask patients about their sleep. Um, they won't remember to tell you, but it's important for us to remember to ask. And the third thing is if you're newly, fairly newly diagnosed with obstructive sleep apnea and you're having difficulty tolerating your CPAP or using your interface, don't give up. Keep trying until you find something that works for you so that you can get the best benefit from your therapy. Well, Dr. Heaton, um, we're so grateful for your expertise um, and so grateful for your willingness uh, to you. share with the public. My pleasure. Um, and we appreciate all of you tuning in today and we hope you have a great weekend. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening to Clinical Pearls from the UAB School of Nursing Health Network. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. This podcast is also available in video form at youtube.com forward slash C forward slash nursing network.